The Gist is sponsored by QuickBooks. If you work for yourself, try QuickBooks Self-Employed. It helps separate your business and personal expenses, estimate your federal quarterly taxes, and more. See what QuickBooks Self-Employed can do for you with a free 30-day trial at tryselfemployed.com slash the gist. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, May 11th, 2015. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Wow, what great guest hosts. Thank you, Plots. Thank you, Plots, for explaining the history of the gist and all the questions that the original feature on Slate, the gist, once endeavored to answer. The original Slate version of the gist, I didn't even know that. It wanted to answer things like, what is the Mossad? What do they do? And who killed John Benet Ramsey? This version, my version of the gist, will one day connect those two questions. Just promising. And then Zoe, great show out of Zoe Chase. She advised, here's my takeaway. During your annual checkup, when the doctor says, hey, it's time for a mammography or it's time for a prostate exam, she says that the doctor should also say, and have you examined the pop charts? Because right around 40, we started getting disengaged with the pop charts. So... The American Medical Association, they're pretty conflicted about whether to advise for mandatory mammographies at 40, but I think we could all get behind introducing 40-year-olds to the new Fetty Wap song, There Will Be No False Positives, Fetty is the New Fitty. And then Sean Ramosforum interviewed God, he interviewed God, and he did this hilarious thing in the beginning of the show where he mispronounced the gist. The thing is, during the exact break, my three days off, that occasion, Sean, hosting the gist and making that particular joke, this is what happened when I went on the PBS NewsHour. With us for more is Mike Pesca, host of the Slate podcast called The Gist, The Gist, The Grist, excuse me, Mike. Oh, Jeffrey Brown, don't you know, it's The Gerst. And on The Glist today, we do speak of Deflate Gate and an unfair but satisfying comparison. And we are joined by Maria Konnikova, a mainstay of The Glorst with Mike Pesca, and we play artificial sweeteners. Are they bullshit? But first, on the ghost, the defense rests in the sentencing phase of the Jahar Sarnayev trial. Will the defense efforts be enough to spare the life of the Boston Marathon bomber? The guilt phase of the trial of Boston Marathon bomber Jahar Sarnayev was a foregone conclusion. His lawyer basically admitted he did it. And it was all about the penalty phase, the sentencing phase. Well, that has just ended. It took 12 days. 19 prosecution witnesses were called. 44 defense witnesses were called. Seth Stevenson has been covering this case for Slate. Hello, Seth. Hey, Mike. So the last witness, the witness we heard today, was the most famous, the only famous witness before this, Sister Helen Prejean. She was portrayed by by Susan Sarandon in the movie Dead Man Walking. And what's her connection to the case other than being a prominent death penalty opponent? So she actually visited with Jahar several times in prison, and she was there to talk about uh, those visitations. And she said what? So the problem with the defense's uh, case in the penalty phase has been they've been able to say, oh, he was influenced by his older brother. Oh, he had this messed up family. Oh, Chechnyan history is a, is a mess. 
Um, and But what they haven't been able to say is whether he's actually remorseful. And people watching Jahar in court all this time, as people have testified about watching their children die, about having their legs blown off, Jahar has barely reacted at all. The only time that reporters noticed him reacting was when his elderly aunt came in and she was very emotionally worked up about seeing him there in front of her. And that made him worked up. And so he and could in fact... There was that moment where she revealed that he cried as a child during The Lion King. Yes, he, he was. And which, of course, the prosecution on, on their uh, cross-examination pointed out, what kind of person cries at the death of a cartoon animal character, but not when he personally kills an eight-year-old child? Yeah. Um, so, so Sister Helen Preacher. So she came to talk about the fact. So she was there to, to perhaps, I think, the, the defense's idea is that she was going to demonstrate that, in fact, Jahar is remorseful, mm-hmm. that he feels bad about what he did, because there's no other evidence to suggest that he is, whether it's his body language or anything anyone's told us during the trial. And so Sister Helen came in and said, uh, I had every reason to believe he was sorry for what he did. He said to her that he was sorry for the suffering of those people. And she talked about his body language when she talked to him about how he lowered his eyes and the tone of his voice and how she believed that he had remorse, which is the only indication that the jury's had that he has any remorse, which is hugely important when you're deciding whether to kill a man or not. And the only way they could introduce this evidence of remorse, and this is taking into account that the guy is right there and can at least pretend to to show remorse during the trial, the only way they have is to hire the world's, or not hire, but to ask the world's most prominent death penalty opponent to come and say the person has remorse, given the fact that she thinks it's a moral wrong, she thinks that it's antithetical to the teachings of God to kill someone. Uh, I'm not saying she would lie, but perhaps she would think that anyone in their heart has remorse and would say that about everyone. Sure, and she wasn't paid. However, she does get paid a lot. She's doing she's doing a uh, speaking engagement later tonight in Boston to talk about this stuff. She gets paid a lot. Her foundation receives money, a lot of money based on her being a celebrity in the anti-death penalty world. And her entire framework, her entire outlook is that even people who do horrible things are still human beings. They're not pure monsters. So, of course, she is predisposed to see Jahar that way. And let's let's point out, I mean, Jahar could have taken the stand and talked about how bad he felt, how remorseful he was. They have not put him on the stand to do that. Another thing that happened during the sentencing phase that got a lot of attention, but you and I have talked about this, and we both think it was blown up a little bit, is at one point from the closed-circuit video uh, in the jail cell, he gives the camera the finger. This made the cover of the New York Post, but... Was this really actually a big deal that you think will damn him? No, it's a great visual. I can see why it, you know, blew up all over the internet because it's a terrific visual to see the guy who killed all these people, you know, flashing the the bird to the camera. But what does that really tell us about him? I mean, he's in a holding cell at, you know, he's just been shoved in there by some guards. He's he he was looking at when you see the clip, the video clip of what happened. He was adjusting his hair in the reflective surface of the camera, and then he gives a quick two finger salute, which may be peace sign. He may be flashing the deuce, or it may be the European up yours symbol. We don't even know. And then it turns into a, a just a very brief bird. So I, yeah, that's meaningless. That means nothing to me. But basically, what the, the prosecution's entire case in this penalty phase has been about lack of remorse, impact on these victims, and the fact that the prison circumstances at the ADX, the Supermax in Florence, Colorado, will not be hellish enough. And so you must uh, find it in your heart to kill him because if he goes to prison, it's actually going to be a walk in the park. Yeah. Now, this to me, it took a weird turn that this became a debate point where Sernayev's lawyer said, if you really want to punish this guy, send him to this terrible prison where you have 23 hours a day of solitary confinement. That's the real punishment. He doesn't want that. Of course, if he didn't 
want that, he would fire his defense lawyer and just say, give me the death penalty, right? His lawyers were saying that giving him the death penalty was letting him off easy and this supermax prison would be a much greater punishment. That seems weird, especially since everything else they were arguing were was that he doesn't deserve the maximum punishment. Right. They, they walk such a delicate line on this because what they say is, we're not going to make any excuses for what Jahar did. There's no excuses for what he did. Now let us give you a whole bunch of excuses, including, you know, he's got his older brother was was bossing him around. He's got a messed up family, Chechnyan history. He's only a teenager. They brought in a teen brain expert to point out that yeah. his, his brain was not fully formed until he makes impulsive decisions. And so, but in the midst of saying, oh, you know, take it easy on him, then they said, oh, but if you really want to go hard on him, the way to do it isn't to kill him, it's to send him to prison. So they're really trying to have both yeah. sides of the argument. Br'er Rabbit there. By the way, Chechnyan history, how did that come into play? Good question, Mike. Good question. We have two days of Chechen history in the trial. And I mean, what what impact does, you know, this hundreds year old feud, you know, with uh, with Chechen Muslims and Russia have to do with, or not I mean, hundreds of years old, but it's been going on a long time. Yes. And what does it have to do with the decision that a 19 year old made, on, you know, in April morning in Boston? Like, it, he, you know, he barely He's been spent, American most of his life. Right. Exactly. Yeah. He came here when I think he was eight years old. Yeah. He went to high school here. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to. And they said, you can't, you can't disobey your older brother brother in the Chechnyan culture. Right. They made the argument that he had no patriarchal figure because his father was going crazy. And so Tamerlan became the patriarchal figure in Chechnyan culture. It's very, you have to listen to what the man of the house says. It was, you know, they really threw a lot of stuff at the wall. So is that the strategy? Throw everything at the wall. If one thing sticks for any juror, we win. Or could you make the argument that when the arguments become self-contradictory, maybe the everything at the wall strategy doesn't work? I think it's a few things. I think one is, yes, throwing the wall because they just need to convince one person. They don't know which argument's going to which for work for which person. And so they'll just see, throw them all out there. Take your pick. The other thing is just the more they talk about Jahar and the more they round out a, a picture of him, whether it's, you know, the country he came from and the story of that country, whether it's bringing his relatives on the stand to talk about what he was like when he was a kid and how he cried at the Lion King. Everything they say about him makes him a person in the jury's eyes. And the more the jury gets a rounded picture of this guy as a person, not as just the uh, the enactor of those events on, on, on the Marathon Monday of a couple of years ago, the harder it is, I think, for them to kill him. Because it, you know, it's harder for you to kill someone the more you know about them. All right, so uh, how long will closing arguments last? When do you think the jury will start to grapple with this case? Closing argument- sentence, I should say. Closing arguments are Wednesday morning. I will be there. And uh, I don't imagine um, the statements will be more than an hour or two each. And then the jurors will start deliberating. They'll deliberate every day, every weekday, until they come to a conclusion. It has and to be unanimous. For death, it would have to be unanimous, yes. And yeah. it's unclear to me how long it will take them. And, you know, if I were a betting person, I really, uh, I'm not sure. I mean, I think you have to because it's one against the field, because you only need one. Yeah. You know, I think if you, if you were betting, you would have to bet he will not get the death penalty. But I, who knows? knows with this jury. I mean, they came out guns blazing on the after the guilt phase and they found him guilty on every single possible question, not all of which were were completely to my eyes clear clear cut. So, who knows. Yeah. Like disrupting the business of interstate commerce. That was one of them. Some of them were not no-brainers, and they yeah. did, but they just went down the line. Guilty, guilty, guilty. Seth Stevenson's been covering the Sarnayev trial for Slate. Thank you, Seth. Thanks, Mike. If you work for yourself, try QuickBooks Self-Employed. It separates business and personal expenses so you can easily track what you spend for work and what you spend on yourself. It also helps take the guesswork out of your estimated federal quarterly taxes. Because if you guess wrong on that, 
It could be a terrible, terrible April 15th. That means come tax time, you will know how much money to set aside. For Uncle Sam, how much stays in your pocket. Explore what QuickBooks Self-Employed can do for you with a free 30-day trial at tryselfemployed.com slash the gist. I'll give that URL again. tryselfemployed.com slash the gist. So as you hear these cars roll by and these people chat, I can't believe people are chatting at an outdoor restaurant. Oh, wait a minute. We're doing that loudly with microphones. I'm here with Maria Konnikova. Hello, Maria. Hello, Mike. And what better place to discuss the potential or potentially bullshit dangers of artificial sweeteners? What are you, what are you drinking there, Maria? I'm drinking an iced tea, Mike. What about you? I have an iced coffee and I brought my own sweetener. It's sweet and low. Mm. Yes, I, I see that they don't actually have it in the restaurant, do they? Yeah, they did not. It's a gluten-free food. It's a blend of nutritive and non-nutritive sweeteners, including dextrose, saccharin, cream of tartar. Let me just say, mmm, calcium something, which is an anti-caking agent. Mm-hmm. Well, what, do you, what do you sweeten your uh, tea with? Nothing, Mike. Really? But if I were going to use anything, it would be regular sugar. Uh-huh. And is that from a scientific knowledge that you possess? It is from a scientific knowledge wow. that I possess. But let me just put it out there right away because this is what most people think of when they think of artificial sweeteners. Are yeah. they bad for you? They do not cause cancer. Okay. But they but, do cause leprosy. Right. Yes. That is not exactly. bullshit. Exactly. Yes. That is not bullshit. You know, there was a big study that came out um, back in the 70s that really got everyone started on this kick that artificial start, uh, sweeteners might cause stomach cancer. Right. Um, and so everyone started panicking, artificial sweeteners, stomach cancer, awful, awful, awful. And then it ended up that the rat's stomach works actually in a really different way from the humans, and it only happened in rats. And in humans, there was no relationship, but the information was already out there, and so people still think that artificial sweeteners cause cancer. By the way, now we're talking about older sweeteners. Every time they come up with something new, I have no idea, because every time the chemical composition is a little bit different, so we can't always say that. But the, the fact that it doesn't cause cancer doesn't mean that it's actually a good thing to put in your body Right, it doesn't have deleterious effects. So, Pepsi recently changed its formula, and I think it went away from aspartame, right? It did, yes. Which is equal is uh, what aspartame is. What's it going to, do you know? I don't actually know what it's going to, but unless it's going to regular sugar, that change shouldn't do much because what we know about the bad health benefits of artificial sweeteners basically apply across the board. And in order to explain that, I think we should back up a little bit and explain what artificial sweeteners really are. Let's talk about it. And these are compounds that have been derived. The first one by mistake totally in the 19th century, the end of the 19th century, from tar. They were doing a tar refining process. Uh-huh. And the guy by Trying mistake- Trying to patch a road and wound up sweetening our and foods. And the guy in the lab by mistake got some in his mouth and he's like, oh wow, this is really sweet and I didn't die. Um, and that's how, <laughs> and that's how saccharin was first discovered. <laughs> oh my God. Um, so that's bad, bad lab practice, by the way. Do not put things that you're working on into your mouth. What they are are compounds that are much, much sweeter than ordinary sugar. And so you can use a lot fewer of them to get the same sweet impact. Mm -hmm. Some of them go directly through your body and aren't even digested. So they're 
cal caloric value is zero. Others, depending on them, actually do get absorbed a little bit, but still because you use such minute quantities, it's not, it's a negligible caloric amount. It's like four calories. Sugar obviously has many more calories. And I, so I believe 16 calories a teaspoon. But not only that, when you put it in a drink, it dissipates unevenly. So that last sip, it's always clustered at the bottom. Whereas the beauty of science, the sweet and low I just put in my iced coffee, every single drop of the iced coffee has just as much sweet and low. That might be a very good side effect. But let's, let's follow what happens as you sip that coffee and get that sweet and low into your mouth. Our first hunger or satiety cue comes from the tongue when we get something in our mouth. And when you're tasting this, you're tasting sweet, as you would if you were tasting regular sugar, because that's the whole point. And then you get the sweet sensation, the brain processes it. It says, oh, yay, sweet, we really like sweet. We're about to get lots of calories, which is really good because the body likes calories. And then it waits, and the calories don't actually come because you fooled your brain into thinking, into starting a digestive process with calories that aren't actually going to be digested. And so what happens? As a result, you're going to become then hungrier because you need the, you, your body was ready for the calories, you never got them, and so you're going to have more appetite later on. But the other thing that happens, which is even more important, because the hunger thing you can kind of control if you really want to, is your metabolism gets a little bit screwed up because your body got ready to digest and it, it wasn't able to. And so there's a metabolic impact of this, and there's recent work that shows that artificial sweeteners can actually screw with your metabolism and increase glucose um, intolerance and end up leading to things like type 2 di diabetes Wow! Uh, because of the metabolic impacts. Hmm. Gut bacteria is a real thing, huh? Gut bacteria this is, is a, a constant real thing. thread. Absolutely. So the president of PepsiCo was on CNBC, mm -hmm. the chief executive, and he did say that aspartame is one of the most researched ingredients in the world. So this is the Hillary Clinton argument. It's been vetted. I guess you're saying it's been vetted, but in some cases found out, found to be wanted. As we've talked about, the microbiome is hot right now. So people before could dismiss a lot of the studies because they were mostly correlational over time. And they would show things like people who eat artificial sweeteners are more prone to diabetes, gain more weight, have a lot of adverse health effects. But then you have to wonder, you know, well, are these people already, do they have other unhealthy habits? And people try to control for it. But as long as it's a study like that, there are going to be variables you can't control. And so now that we're getting lab results back, it doesn't mean it's unsafe. No one is saying that, gain, you know, it's not unsafe to change your gut microbiome. If, it, if we had a study that said it caused cancer, then people would say it's unsafe. This, it's unhealthy, but unhealthy is not necessarily the same thing as unsafe. Gotcha. So, let's take it piece by piece. Artificial sweeteners cause cancer, diabetes, heart disease. Is that bullshit? Well, for cancer, yes, as far as we know. For diabetes and heart disease, probably no. For diabetes, probably not. For heart disease, we don't know, probably yes. All right, let me give you the second part of that. Artificial sweeteners are a good way to lose weight and cut calories. Is that bullshit? That is absolute bullshit. It will cut calories, but it might perversely make you gain weight instead of losing it. Maria Konnikova, cheers.
Cheers. And now the spiel. This is a story. So I miss covering Deflategate here on The Gist. I bet you were despondent. I bet there was a small gap in your soul for where my particular take on Deflategate was going to go. I did discuss it on NPR and Hang Up and Listen and on PBS where I was identified as host of The Grust. But they will not silence me on this, my daily news and infotainment program. What I want to say is that I have heard a lot of the this isn't news complaint. I mean, you got Yemen, you got the Houthis, you got Baltimore riots, you got a whole bunch of other proper nouns. Seriously, all those things are, of course, much more important than deflated footballs. But that's an awful point because anything where anyone dies or could dies or where lives are at stake is going to be more important than anything related to sports or culture or entertainment. But guess what? Sports and culture and entertainment and crossword puzzles and cooking, these are things people are into also, and it's not right to say don't ever pay attention to them. So let me make a related point. All that, all that is prologue to me making this point about Deflategate that I will acknowledge is slightly unfair, yet really satisfying. If you want to say, don't pay attention to this, maybe here's why we should pay attention. So let's talk about this report, the the Wells Report, 243 pages, 67 witnesses interviewed. They hired an outside forensic firm to go through text messages or something. They hired outside atmospheric experts. A tenured Princeton professor was put on the payroll to analyze the results of the deflated football story. Then you have the lawyer who wrote the report, Ted Wells. I don't have in front of me Ted Wells's hourly rate. I do know that he was mentioned in an article in the American Bar Association Journal, and the title of that article was A Week in the Life of a $1,000 Per Hour Lawyer. And I do know that Savoy Magazine put him on the cover and had this line about him. He has probably tried to verdict more multi-billion dollar cases than any lawyer in the nation. His clients were ExxonMobil, Citigroup, Philip Morris. Philip Morris faced damages of $280 billion. Wells won I think Philip Morris was pretty happy if he was getting $1,000 an hour. It's still a bargain when you face a $280 billion fine. All I'm saying is that Ted Wells gets paid a lot of money, and he did a lot of work. They hired him sometime in January. They put out the report sometime in May. Maybe if he didn't work weekends, he still worked 75-something days. I don't know. Let's call them 10-hour days. So basically, he is working 700 hours at the $1,000 an hour. We're getting close to a million dollars that this report cost. And it wasn't just Wells working. The Paul Weiss, that's his firm team, had the following attorneys working on this report. Brad S. Karp, Lauren L. Reisner, Douglas M. Burns, Amy E. Gold, H. Bola George, and Rebecca L. Orell. They hired a tenured Princeton professor. This was to get to the bottom of if a team deflated a football or maybe two footballs. And the conclusion wasn't very conclusive. It was that Tom Brady generally or probably or likely was generally aware that the footballs were deflated. I understand the NFL is big business. They wouldn't think of this as wasting money. This was a huge story. This was hanging over the Super Bowl, pretty much the biggest cultural product we have. So from that perspective, this maybe, I think I've documented, maybe a million dollars was money decently spent. Listen to this. In Detroit, six years ago, 
they found 11,000 untested rape kits abandoned in a storage, a police storage unit. They just didn't have the money to test the kits. In Memphis, Tennessee, there are 12,000 untested rape kits. In Las Vegas, there are 4,000 untested rape kits. Everyone knows about this. It's not an oversight. These municipalities just don't have the money to test the rape kits. What happened when Detroit started testing its rape kits? They got 188 serial rapists, but they don't have the money to test the kits. It costs about $1,000 to process a rape kit. New York City once had a backlog of 17,000 rape kits. They, there was a good year on Wall Street. Times were flush under Bloomberg. They paid to test these kits. Now New York City is trying to help other municipalities test the kits. I say the NFL, an organization that is desperately in need of some good PR around the issue of spousal abuse and sexual abuse. Hello, first pick, Jameis Winston. The NFL could really use a huge PR win. The NFL just dedicated at least hundreds of thousand dollars to the Was Your Football Deflated investigation. The NFL should say, look, we spent this much money on the footballs. The exact amount of money we spent on our investigation, we're donating that amount of money to the charity. Charities exist to fund the processing of rape kits. This is not without precedent in the world of sports. A couple weeks ago, during that Pacquiao-Mayweather fight, there were a lot of women's groups saying, if you spend $100 to watch the fight, consider giving $100 to a women's center. And people did that. I don't think sports fans would be against that. In fact, this isn't touchy-feely altruism, right? I think the football fan would be really jazzed to try to catch some rapists. This isn't the, let's all wear pink and give a vague amount of money for breast cancer awareness. This is a little more vindictive. This is a little more aggressive. I think this is totally in line with the NFL. So if I were to make a point about the Wells report not being news, well, it is. And if they tied it to something like funding the processing of rape kits, it could actually be good and important news beyond the issue of a deflated ball. And that's it for today's show. When you see GIST producer Andrea Salenzi in your rearview mirror, you actually see the words, Air DNA is Nellis. It's just the mirror writing. When you see Joel Meyer, the managing producer of our podcasts, you see Ray M. Leo J. Similarly, executive producer Andy Bowers scans in your rearview mirror as he's bearing down on you. Andy Bowers scans as Shrew Ob. Yadana, I only bring this up because it's a Monday. We play a They Might Be Giants song in honor of their dial a song. And today's They Might Be Giants song is what you see when the ambulance is behind you. The letters E C N A L U B M A. Perhaps you could pronounce it Ek Alumba, or maybe you should just listen to this.
I think my 